0: Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fisca your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, recording from my apartment, La Chateau T-Dot, on the southwest corner of Durham, North Carolina. The weather here is still uh, unpleasant, so Mike and I decided we were going to do this remotely. We missed most of the hurricane. We really just got a bunch of rain, but it is still raining And as Hurricane Florence became a tropical storm and then a tropical depression, the scope of uh, the geography affected by it has expanded. So what was light rain yesterday, uh, even earlier today, has turned into just these torrential freaking nonstop downpours to the point where my dog, who actually likes being outside in the rain, had to go pee, went out and uh, saw how much it was raining And rather than actually venture out into the yard, decided to pee on one of the shrubs right near the entryway and then turned back around. So we're recording here from my apartment. You might hear the dog periodically as we record, but this is the first podcast where we are releasing on time, on a Monday, uh, for the first time in a while. So y'all are just going to have to deal with it. If you wanted to know where we have been, there was a mini pod released last week with some details about the dog There's also a fresh Law 140 that was released for the patrons on our Patreon page regarding Roy Moore and his lawsuit against Sasha Baron Cohen. So check out both of those. Uh, And as for what is going to be covered this week, uh, we're going to try and get through what we can. But I need y'all to understand, I have hundreds, literal hundreds of stories that have been backlogged for the uh, four weeks that we have not been doing regular podcasts uh, that includes for this episode, I've still got stuff from the past week that I couldn't get into this outline because at some point you just have to cut the outline off and say we're going to record an episode. So what we're doing, there will be no Law 140 for this episode. If you want to hear Law 140, you've got to go become one of our patrons and listen to the uh, the exclusive that we have on Patreon. There's probably not going to be a Law 140 next week either, and there may or may not be one the week after that. And what I'm going to do is that over the next two weeks... I'm going to work in these old stories as I can, and by the time we get to middle of October, if you've not heard them yet, they're probably just going to get scrapped, because it's insane, the quantity of stuff that happens in any given week. I just can't keep up with it. All right, so this week, just criminal justice fuckery. I'm going to do a very quick run-through on politics. I promise you it'll be brief, but it's just that's another one of those things that's fascinating to me, what has happened over the past month. Uh, No Law 140, but stay tuned for a bunch of crazy shit going on around the country. If you've not already done so, please make sure to join the conversation online. The Twitter account for the podcast is at Fiskamall. It is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. You can leave a comment on our website, FiskeMall.com. That's F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. One of our stories was actually shared on the website. That's how I found out about it, so don't hesitate to leave us a comment there. And if you would like to become one of our financial Sponsors, you can do that on Patreon.com/fisk. That is Patreon.com/fsck. Uh, we ask you for seven dollars a month, and in exchange for that, you get occasional bonus Law 140s. I think we've got like seven or eight of them on there now, uh, plus other stuff sporadically. Uh, in terms of the politics stuff, I promise you, I'm not going to talk about it long, but I just want to go through a run through of how many people have been involved in our federal criminal justice system just in the past month. So remember, the last podcast we had before we went on our hiatus, I mentioned Republican Congress critter Chris Collins, the first Congress critter to endorse Donald Trump, had been indicted for a really paint-by-numbers insider trading thing. Like the guy was an idiot when he did it. Well, since then... Republican Congress critter Duncan Hunter and his wife had been federally indicted for spending campaign money on personal expenses. And this guy was this guy was really uh, not clever with it So like he would buy Personal clothes And wife would say Hey go do it at a golf shop So that we can put it On an expense report That you're actually Buying golf balls For wounded warriors And they're doing this The same week He's criticizing Colin Kaepernick For kneeling uh, In protest of police brutality So the guy really does Have a set on him uh, Trump's foreign policy advisor George Papadopoulos Was sentenced He's going to get 14 days in prison For lying to the FBI Now that doesn't seem Like a lot But it's something to remember That first offenders For that time Type of crime typically get probation, so the fact he's doing actual jail time is interesting. Uh, the president's lawyer, Michael Cohen, pled guilty to several felonies, implicated the president in them. So you now have a president who stands accused of helping engage in uh, violations of the law. And then you have Paul Manafort, Trump's former campaign manager, who was convicted on eight counts at a trial then was facing a second trial on the Foreign Agent Registration Act violations, plus a retrial on the 10 counts where the jury did not reach a verdict. And as of this past week, Manafort decided instead he's going to plead guilty uh, to two counts, one a conspiracy to defraud the United States, the other obstruction of justice, and then admit responsibility to the other counts, even though those charges are going to be dismissed. Plus, he's giving up several of his residences, apparently he had like five separate houses, and he's giving up several of his bank accounts and it's all being done through civil asset forfeiture, so even if he does get a pardon from the president, he's not going to get any of that stuff back. Uh, basically, the witch hunt is lit. If you happen to work for Bob Mueller's team, you're knocking them down like a fucking bowling pins, man. It's uh, It's been interesting. There probably will not be any more announcements before election day. I wouldn't expect any, uh, but it's going to be fun once the election is over with. Oh, and then on top of that, you got Bob Woodward's new book is out, which is a terrifying read, and then you had these cowards uh, who wrote the New York Times editorial basically saying that they're running a day-to-day coup, uh, running the government, trying to stop the president from doing things, which is another terrifying read. It's just been a very interesting month in politics that just happened to coincide with when we were not around. So I just wanted to go over that briefly. In terms of criminal justice news. You might notice the name of this episode is Baby Steps, and it is a reference to several of the Courts of Appeals decisions that were handed down this past month. So we've got five of them from three different circuits, it looks like, uh, several of which relate to qualified immunity. That's what the topic was about. So I got all of these. From a guy named Brad Heath. He is at Brad Heath on Twitter. Follow him if you don't already. I rely on him for new qualified immunity cases and just other crazy stuff that happens to come out from the courts of appeals. But we're going to start in the Fifth Circuit, which covers uh, Texas and some other states I don't recall. And in this case, qualified immunity was granted. Cases Zade versus Robinson. We'll give you a link to the uh, decision in the show notes, and it involved a doctor's records being searched by the medical board upon the request of the drug enforcement agency. Uh, The board was given qualified immunity for violating the doctor's rights not to be searched because the right not to be searched was not clearly established. We've talked about that in many podcasts. But the interesting part about this particular case is that Judge Don Willett, who was on that particular circuit, wrote a concurrence basically saying, hey, my hands are tied. I've got to give these guys qualified immunity. But he says, quote, The court is right about Dr. Zadeh's rights. They were violated. But owing to a legal deus ex machina, the clearly established law prong of qualified immunity analysis, the violation eludes vindication. I write separately to register my disquiet over the kudzu-like creep of the modern immunity regime. To some observers, qualified immunity smacks of unqualified impunity, letting public officials duck consequences for bad behavior, no matter how palpably unreasonable, as long as they were the first to behave badly. Merely proving a constitutional deprivation doesn't cut it. Plaintiffs must cite functionally identical precedent that places the legal question beyond debate to every reasonable officer. Put differently, it's immaterial that someone acts unconstitutionally if no prior case held such misconduct unlawful. Two other factors perpetuate perplexity over clearly established law. First, many courts grant immunity without first determining whether the challenged behavior violates the Constitution. They avoid scrutinizing the alleged offense by skipping to the simpler second prong. There's no factually analogous precedent. Forgoing a knotty constitutional inquiry makes for easier sledding, but the inexorable result is constitutional stagnation, fewer courts establishing law at all, much less clearly doing so. Second, constitutional litigation increasingly involves cutting-edge technologies – If courts leapfrog the underlying constitutional merits in cases raising novel issues like digital privacy, then constitutional clarity, matter-of-fact guidance about what the Constitution requires, remains exasperatingly elusive. The result, blurred constitutional contours as technological innovation outpaces legal adaptation. No precedent equals no clearly established law equals no liability." Heads, defendants win. Tails, plaintiffs lose. And he has more in there, but that basically is the same critique that I have been making on this podcast since we started. This idea that you're in this kind of circular reasoning where courts are skipping over whether or not someone violated the Constitution, so you never get to establish clearly established precedent, so you never get to have a uh, qualified immunity stripped away so you never get a trial and so on and so forth it's just a terrible setup and it's the Supreme Court is to blame for it because not only did they create the doctrine but they also decided the case that gave uh, direction to lower courts that they could consider the two prongs in either order. It used to be you had to first determine that there was a constitutional violation and then determine whether or not there was clearly established precedent. Now the courts can tackle either prong first. So all they do is look for the precedent, and if it's not there, don't even bother to decide if something was a constitutional violation or not. So that's out of the Fifth Circuit. We have at least one judge on the Fifth Circuit who does not like qualified immunity. Well, then in the Sixth Circuit, no qualified immunity – for officers who deliberately tased a pregnant woman in the stomach. The case there is Osberry versus Slusher. And I'm going to read you a bit from the opening part of the opinion it says, quote, Brittany Osbury was arrested while carpooling. In August of 2016, Osbury drove her car to a friend's house, pulled into the driveway and parked the car. She was there to pick up her niece and nephew. But within seconds of arriving, three police officers approached her vehicle, one with a gun drawn, and told her to leave. Although she explained that she was just there to pick up the children, the officers pulled her out of the vehicle within 14 seconds of arriving, handcuffed her, and tased her. A bystander caught this entire interaction totaling less than a minute on video. The officers arrested Osbury for obstructing official business, disorderly conduct, and resisting arrest. All charges were eventually dropped, and Osbury filed this lawsuit alleging constitutional violations against the officers. In response, the officers simultaneously filed their answer and moved for judgment on the pleadings. Although the district court dismissed several of Osbury's claims, it declined to dismiss the claims for unlawful arrest, the use of excessive force, assault, and failure to train the officers. Because we agree at this early stage of the proceedings that Osbury's complaint satisfies the relevant pleading requirements and the officers are not entitled to qualified immunity, we affirm. And of course, it goes on to much greater detail from there. We'll give you the opinion. The weird part about this particular case is that the officers attached the civilian recorded video to their answer, basically thinking that this would, you know, sew things up and make it easier for them to get qualified immunity. But then when you watch the video, it basically confirms the woman's story of events where she told them that she was pregnant and they tased her in the stomach anyway when she wasn't even trying to do anything bad. She wasn't resisting arrest or anything like that. Uh, So we give you a link to that opinion. Also out of the Sixth Circuit, no qualified immunity for a police officer who searched a teen girl under her bra uh, because the girl, quote, looked like a junkie whore. That was the rationale for the search. From that story, or not from the story, from that opinion, it says, "Quote: Seventeen-year-old Brittany Harris was a passenger in her family's minivan when it was pulled over by police officers in Erlanger, Kentucky. Later, Officer Kimberly Clare was summoned to escort Harris to a nearby restroom, and while doing so, searched her in allegedly inappropriate and unlawful ways." Harris brought suit under 42 United States Code Section 1983, claiming that the search violated the Fourth Amendment. This appeal requires us to determine whether the district court erred in granting summary judgment to Claire. Because a reasonable jury could find that Officer Claire's search of Harris was unconstitutional and that Claire is not entitled to qualified immunity, we reverse. So in that one, the district court gave the cop qualified immunity. The appellate court reversed. Basically, what happened in that case was that there was a traffic stop and the police called for a drug dog. The family waited for an hour for the drug dog to arrive, and their 17-year-old daughter had to use the bathroom during that time. So a cop was walking her to the bathroom, and in the process uh, said, hey, I'm going to have to search you, and basically reached under the girl's clothes, uh, patted around her breasts and everything else. And the reason why uh, was that there had been a previous suspect at that location who, subquote, stuffed needles in her bra, Uh, and therefore, because, subquote, you have that look, you have the look of a junkie whore, the officer decided to search this 17-year-old girl as well. Uh, Out of the Ninth Circuit, we have two cases where qualified immunity was denied. Uh, One is for a school resource officer who arrested a group of girls. Uh, Some were bullying others. They arrested both the bullies and the victims to Prove a point. That is the exact quote. So I'm going to read you for the Ninth Circuit opinions. Rather than go into the opinion, I'm going to give you the synopsis that is at the start of each opinion – Keep in mind, this is not the actual legal language. We'll give you a link to the opinion in the show notes, but it just makes my life easier reading the summary for you. Uh, It says, quote, "...the panel affirmed the district court's summary judgment in an action brought by three middle school girls who alleged that a sheriff's deputy arrested them on campus without probable cause in violation of their Fourth Amendment rights and state law." The middle school's assistant school principal had asked the sheriff's deputy, a school resource officer, to counsel a group of girls who had been involved in ongoing incidents of bullying and fighting. After concluding that the girls were unresponsive and disrespectful, the deputy arrested the girls, subquote, to prove a point and, subquote, to make them mature a lot faster. Applying the two-part reasonableness test set forth in New Jersey versus TLO. Sidebar, we've talked about that case before, about the uh, rights of kids in school. Look at the Law 140 on that one. Uh, court continues quote the panel held that the arrests were unreasonable because they were not justified at their inception nor reasonably related in scope to the circumstances the panel held that the summary arrest handcuffing and police transport to the station of the middle school girls was a disproportionate response to the school's need which was dissipation of what the school officials characterized as an ongoing feud and continuous argument between the students the panel further held that police officers were not entitled to quality Qualified immunity because no reasonable officer could have reasonably believed that the law authorizes the arrest of a group of middle schoolers in order to teach them a lesson or to prove a point. Now, if that decision is not adequately shocking to you, there is another one out of the Ninth Circuit where this time an Internal Revenue Service police officer, uh, which is crazy to me that the IRS has police, I get it, but I still think it's weird. Where qualified immunity was demanded for them because the IRS officer insisted that she watch a woman use the bathroom. It's very creepy. Uh, but from the summary of that opinion says, quote, the panel affirmed the district court's order on summary judgment denying qualified immunity to an internal revenue service agent in an action alleging that the agent violated plaintiff's Fourth Amendment right to bodily privacy when during the lawful execution of a search warrant at plaintiff's home, the agent escorted plaintiff to the bathroom and monitored her while she relieved herself. The panel held that weighing the scope, manner, justification, and place of the search, a reasonable jury. The jury could conclude that the agent's actions were unreasonable and violated plaintiff's Fourth Amendment rights. The agent's general interests in preventing destruction of evidence and promoting officer safety did not justify the scope or manner of the intrusion into plaintiff's most basic subject of privacy, her naked body. The panel further held that a reasonable officer in the agent's position would have known that such a significant intrusion into bodily privacy in the absence of legitimate government justification was unlawful. The Agent, therefore, was not entitled to qualified immunity. So those are your five appellate decisions this week. We're going to give you links to all of them. But basically, in one case, you had qualified immunity, where a judge was still annoyed by it anyway, and in the other four cases, qualified immunity was denied. So I have no hope that qualified immunity will be eroded in my lifetime, meaningfully, but... These are at least baby steps in the right direction. In general research news, which is really like water is wet news this week, the American Bar Association has a story out on a new study that basically confirms both race and gender bias is rampant in the legal field. From that story, it says, quote, A new report details the endemic bias women and minority lawyers continue to face compared to their white male counterparts, but it also offers some tools to disrupt the status quo. Uh, Subquote, you can't change what you can't see is based on a 2016 survey of 2,827 in-house and firm attorneys, and it says current efforts to advance women and minorities have largely failed and bias and discrimination, both explicit and implicit, persist. The survey was conducted by the Center for Work-Life Law at the University of California's Hastings College of the Law in San Francisco on behalf of the ABA Commission on Women in the Profession and the Minority Corporate Counsel Association. In the survey, women of color reported the highest level of bias, with 63% affirming they had to go, subquote, above and beyond others in the workplace to receive the same recognition as colleagues, and 67% stating they were held to higher standards than colleagues— Nearly 70% said they were paid less than their colleagues with similar experience and seniority, compared to 36% of white men. White women also reported high disparities in compensation, with 60% responding they were paid less than similarly situated coworkers. In contrast... of white men felt they had equal access to high-quality assignments, and 75% believed they have been given fair opportunities for promotion. Study authors also note that men of color were subject to some of the same biases as women. For example, white men felt much more free to express anger at work than any other group, including minority men. In addition to gender bias, the report also documents sexual harassment at work, a topic that's gained awareness and national attention but continues to affect women at all levels in every industry. One quarter of female lawyers said they had encountered some form of unwelcome sexual advances or harassment at work, and 70% said they've dealt with sexist comments, stories, and jokes. Uh, The story goes on from there. It's lengthy. The study is lengthy. It's not surprising, but it's going to be weird because, frankly, there are more women than men in law school now, has been for several years, and more women graduating than men in, from law school. And that's been a case even longer. Uh, so I don't know what the profession's going to do when this type of uh, setup falls away when the old white guys die off. So we'll see. All right, let's get into some of the uh, criminal justice fuckery. We'll start with the federal stuff. And this is a – one of the things that has come up in this past month is this Maria Butina who is a Russian spy as part of the Russia Gate investigation. She was arrested and she was indicted and as part of those initial indictments, there were allegations that she was offering to trade sex for work. Well, it turns out that the government lied about that. So it's a reminder that the government will completely fabricate shit even when they don't need to. From that story, it says, quote, federal prosecutors have admitted that they wrongly accused Maria Butina, a Russian citizen now in custody on charges of illegally acting as a foreign agent of offering to trade sex for a job as part of a covert effort by Russian government officials to infiltrate Republican circles in the United States. In a court filing, prosecutors in the United States Attorney's Office in Washington acknowledged they had been, subquote, mistaken in interpreting what were apparently joking text messages between Mrs. Butina and a friend who had helped her renew her car insurance. So keep that in mind. I like prosecutors. I work with a lot of them. I don't trust their story that they tell me by default because they're being fed information from investigators, they're making their own judgments, and all of them are trained to see everyone as a bad guy because that's what they deal with most of the time. So someone who works on the defense side, you know, a lot of my clients are legitimately people that have violated the law, uh, but sometimes you also get folks who are innocent and you got to be willing to push back on some of those details. So we'll give you a link to that story. Out of the UK Guardian, so our beloved Papaya POTUS, Donald Trump, had another one of his... uh, you know, rallies, except this one was in the White House. The editorial ran in the New York Times about the administrative coup that is going on, and he attacked the, quote, very, very dishonest media. Well, his audience, rather than being a bunch of his uh, MAGA hat chud worshippers, was a bunch of sheriffs, and they all whooped and hollered and cheered. Well, the UK Guardian, God bless them, took a picture and identified each of the sheriffs, and you will be shocked, shocked to find that most of them, the ones cheering Trump's attack on the media, had been exposed by the media for their own assorted wrongdoing. So that it's a long piece and it's fun to read. So I'm going to give you the link. You should enjoy reading it. But the opening four sentences says, quote, Donald Trump whipped up another rowdy ovation from a friendly crowd this week with an attack on the media, accusing journalists of being, subquote, very, very dishonest and refusing to give him credit for his purported achievements. But rather than the usual sports stadium packed with partisans and red baseball caps, this tirade against the press was applauded by dozens of senior law enforcement officials in the splendor of the East Room of the White House. A review of coverage produced by regional media outlets over recent years found that many of the sheriffs who cheered the president have come under sharp scrutiny from the press for their own actions or for those of the officers in their departments. They have been held accountable by local journalists for incidents that include leaving a service pistol in a casino bathroom, mistreatments in jails, one officer wearing blackface, and various other actions. So we give you a link to that story. There's a lot there. In the state-by-state criminal justice fuckery, like I said, we've got hundreds of these. So this is a, a couple dozen selected ones for this particular past week. Out of Torrance, California, an LAPD officer has been arrested for sexually assaulting a thirteen year old girl. From that story it says, quote, an LAPD officer has been accused of assaulting another officer's thirteen year old daughter in her bedroom while staying in their home, officials said. Kenneth Lewis Collard was charged with three counts of committing a lewd act upon a child and one count of sexual penetration by a foreign object. The alleged assault occurred at Collard's friend's home, where he was staying after an evening of socializing. At the end of the night, Collard was encouraged not to drive back to his Riverside home and to instead stay with the friend, also an LAPD officer, according to a law enforcement source familiar with the investigation. In the middle of the night, prosecutors said a collard entered the girl's bedroom and assaulted her. He can look on the bright side. He is now qualified to be nominated to the Supreme Court. Uh, out of Florida, in Biscayne Park, Raimundo Ateziano, the police chief we've talked about in at least four different episodes now 72, 76, 77, and 79. Uh, this is the guy that liked to frame black guys for crimes they didn't commit. He's now pled guilty. In federal court, to doing that. From that story, it says quote: Five years ago, Biscayne Park Police Chief Raimundo Atesiano bragged to the town's leaders about his department's exceptional one hundred percent clearance rate on burglaries in the tree-lined suburb north of Miami. On Friday, however, Ateziano admitted his own criminal behavior was behind the boast to the village commission. He acknowledged at his plea hearing in Miami federal court that he directed three of his police officers to pin a series of unsolved home and vehicle break-ins on three innocent men to perfect the force's property crimes record. Ateziano, 52, pleaded guilty to a conspiracy charge of depriving the three suspects of their civil rights because he and the officers framed them. Also in Florida, we have the third rule of Fisk in this very same episode. The third rule, of course, is there are no new stories, just new names and jurisdictions. From this story, it says, quote, A Miami-Dade police lieutenant is accused of molesting a young girl. Miami-Dade police lieutenant Braulio Gonzalez appeared in court Friday morning. He was charged with four counts of lewd or lascivious molestation of a child and armed kidnapping of a child under the age of 12. Gonzales, a member of the department's special response team, was arrested Thursday afternoon at the agency's headquarters for allegedly molesting a girl over a two-year period. The arrest report stated, subquote, The victim explained that between the ages of 8 and 10 years old, the defendant fondled her. According to the arrest warrant, the girl told a child protective investigator that the first time Gonzalez fondled her, he pointed a gun at her head and threatened to kill her sibling if she didn't comply. We've got the best people working for the Miami PD. Uh, Out of Georgia in Gwinnett County... A man's divorce landed him in jail for a year on the tail end of an extortion demand. From that story, it says, quote, Your freedom can be taken from you in an instant. That's the message a Gwinnett County man and his attorney have after police arrested him for a crime he didn't commit. Police arrested Ilya Zaretsky, 45, last September, on charges he raped a younger relative. At the time, investigators claimed he drugged the teen with sleeping pills and had sex with her. Subquote, it destroyed my family, Zaretsky said. I had a career that I built over 17 years, and it destroyed my career. As Zaretsky sat in jail without bond, his defense attorney, Jay Apt, said he began investigating the allegations and was shocked by what he found. Subquote This was the detective's first rape case. She was very inexperienced. She had not collected any DNA. She had not collected the clothing from the victim, the sheets from the house. She never even went and inspected the crime scene where the alleged rape occurred. She didn't question several people who were in the house that night. Uh, Apt said the allegation surfaced four months after the accuser said the rape occurred, and only after Zaretsky filed for divorce from his wife whom Apt said is related to the teen's mother. Zaretsky and Apt said they also plan to present evidence at trial that members of the accuser's family tried to extort Zaretsky for money in exchange for her recanting her story. Gwinnett County District Attorney Danny Porter told the news when it came time to prepare for trial, investigators re-interviewed the accuser, and her stories didn't match up. Subquote, when you break down the original statement, it is impossible for the act to have occurred in the way it was described. The physics of of it don't work. So we'll give you a link to that story. Uh, out of Kentucky, a police sergeant has been sentenced to three and a half years in federal prison for violating someone's civil rights. out of Providence, We have a news release from the U.S. Department of Justice announcing the verdict and it says, quote, William Dukes Jr., a former sergeant with the Providence, Kentucky Police Department, was sentenced today to 42 months in federal prison and three years supervised release for willfully depriving a Kentucky citizen of his constitutional rights under color of law. The jury heard evidence presented in court that when the victim called the Providence Police Department to complain about Dukes, Dukes responded by threatening to arrest arrest the man if he called back again. Still determined to file a complaint, the victim then called the local sheriff's office and the Kentucky State Police. When Dukes became aware of these additional calls, he drove to the victim's home in the middle of the night without a warrant to arrest him. Upon arriving at the victim's home after one o'clock in the morning, Dukes attempted to arrest the victim based solely on the phone calls he had made complaining about Dukes. When the victim insisted he had done nothing wrong and retreated into his home, Dukes entered the victim's home without a warrant. Dukes then tased the victim, sprayed him in the face with pepper spray, struck him repeatedly with the police baton, and punched him in the face, breaking the victim's nose. Next, Dukes handcuffed the victim and charged him with four crimes, including a charge of property damage because blood from the victim's broken nose got onto Dukes' police uniform. Hope he enjoys that three and a half years in prison. Out of Louisiana, the floor-to-ceiling clusterfuck of criminal justice. This is an interesting issue with the media, so I want you to listen to the headline, then listen to the story, and then see if you can catch the discrepancy here. The headline says, and I don't know how to pronounce it, I'm assuming it's Plaquemines because that's what it looks like to me. Uh, Plaquemines deputy, tied to far-right group Proud Boys, has been fired by sheriff's office. So that's the headline. The story says, "Quote the Plaquemines Parish Sheriff's Office on Thursday fired a deputy recently linked to the far-right group called the Proud Boys, saying that the organization's values are contradictory to those of the law enforcement agency. The deputy, Brian Green, also violated an internal policy prohibiting employees from engaging in social media activity subquote, that negatively affects the public perception of the agency." A furor erupted on social media earlier this month when people noticed that Green described himself as a member of the Proud Boys and was an administrator of the Facebook page for the group's local chapter. In one video online, Green shares some of his beliefs, saying, Subquote, I'm a proud Western chauvinist who refuses to apologize for creating the modern world. Sidebar, Proud Boys are very anti-women and anti-Muslim, and if you have any doubt about either of those things, watch them beclown themselves on Twitter. Uh, But the story continues, quote, "...Green's decision to utilize the uniform to promote the views of the Proud Boys, whose values are contradictory to the values and the vision of the Sheriff's Office, will not be tolerated," Sheriff Gerald Turlich said in a statement. He added that the office, subquote, "...does not support the organization or its ideals, and law enforcement in general has an obligation to treat all people equally, fairly, and impartially." Turlick said he would ask the feds to help his office investigate whether the Proud Boys are a hate or supremacy group, and Green was placed on indefinite paid leave. You notice the discrepancy there? Now I'm going to read you the headline again. Plaquemine's deputy tied to far-right group Proud Boys has been fired. Then the last sentence, placed on indefinite paid leave. We call that paid vacation. That sound like he's been fired to me. Sounds like he is continuing to collect a paycheck funded by taxpayers while not having to do a job. But that's out of Louisiana. In Maryland, we have good news. Don't let it be said that I don't report good news. The sheriff's deputies in Harford County are getting training on how to not kill dogs. From Reason Magazine, they have a profile on that one, and it starts out, quote, Sheriff's deputies Terry Lindsay and Diana, oh, fuck, Sarah, Mer- Sarah Milano, I'm going to call her Sarah Milano. I don't know how the hell you pronounce that last name. Apologies to that particular deputy if she happens to listen. Uh, are walking into a backyard in a residential neighborhood, responding to a tripped burglar alarm. When a mid sized dog runs out to see who has traipsed onto its master's property, the dog barks and growls at the deputies from about 15 feet away, every bit of its body language conveying a clear message leave. Deputy Lindsay yells at the dog to go away while unclipping the pepper spray from his belt with his left hand. To his right, Sarah Milano unholsters her gun in case Lindsay's pepper spray doesn't work. She could reach for her taser, but a dog is a small, fast-moving target from straight ahead, and the prongs the weapon fires are finicky. The dog ignores the commands and stands its ground. What happens next in this kind of situation could be either another routine day for the Harford County Sheriff's Department, or end up as a major lawsuit complete with local, maybe even national headlines of Maryland cops killing family dog in backyard. The dog charges forward and Lindsay fires the pepper spray. It works. The animal yelps and retreats. The encounter probably takes fewer than 10 seconds. The large projector screens surrounding the deputies then go blank. They are standing in a big dark room on the second floor of the Hartford County Sheriff's Department in front of a Vertra use of force simulator, a high tech video tool that trains deputies how to respond to real life situations in real time. The guns, tasers, and spray canisters are all modified with lasers that the projector screens detect and react to the simulator can hold hundreds of different live action video scenarios from active shooters to domestic violence calls to traffic stops, each one with several branching options that an operator at a computer can choose from depending on how the officer responds. But these Harford County deputies are among the first in the country to use it, to learn how to deal with dogs. So anything that helps limit puppy side is great. We'll give you a link to that story out of Minnesota. In Chaska, uh, Carver County has started expunging traffic violations because one of their former cops had a habit of profiling Latinos. From that story, it says, quote, Carver County attorney Mark Metz and Chaska police chief Scott Knight have expunged 40 traffic convictions and removed them from court records, saying that the ex-officer who wrote the tickets was likely profiling Latinos. The tickets date back over the 14 year career of Joshua Lawrence, a Chaska police officer who was fired in 2015 after an investigation found he had targeted Latino residents. Lawrence appealed his firing to an arbitrator who ruled against him, saying that he relied on racial and ethnic stereotypes in deciding who to pull over and where to patrol. In each of the 40 expunged cases, Lawrence was the only witness to the alleged violation, Knight said. Subquote, we can't trust him, said Metz. We'll give you a link to that story. Uh, Out of New Jersey, uh, this is interesting. Uh, So the Supreme Court for the state of New Jersey has decided that police video, dash cam, body cam, and everything else, is not a public record under New Jersey law. There is no right to disclose it because recording the videos is not required. Because it's an optional recording, therefore it is not a public record. I'm not going to bother to give you any further quotes from that. I'm going to give you a link to the story if you want to read it that has the opinion embedded in it. But it was a 4-3 to decision, and that's crazy to me because you think about it, the entire purpose of a state's open records law and installing the dash cams and body cams in the first place was to help ensure that there's accountability for what happened and now the judges there have said, well, you don't get to see the video anyway. So that's going to kind of defeat the entire purpose for having them. So we give you a link to that story. Out of New York. We have some fun times in New York City this week. Uh, well, let's start with the good news. So again, don't let it be said. I don't report good news. There's a long read in CNN about John Bunn and the nonprofit that he runs. And it starts, quote, the first book John Bunn fell in love with. Curled Up in His Cell at a Maximum Security Prison in Upstate New York was Sister Soldier's novel The Coldest Winter Ever. In the book, a maternal woman advocates for the improvement of her black community in Brooklyn as she watches the people she loves suffer from the consequences of incarceration, violence, and a seemingly endless cycle of poverty. Subquote, I related to that book on so many levels, Bun says. Bun knows more than most what it's like to face injustice. Arrested and imprisoned as an adolescent in New York City, I'm going to do a sidebar, he was arrested at 14. Uh, he spent 17 years in jail for a murder he didn't commit and another decade on parole fighting for his exoneration. In that time, he battled, among others, the courts, police investigators, PTSD, and the challenges of illiteracy. He was 16 before he could read and write. Today, Bunn is 41 and a free man at last, mentoring at-risk young people and advocating for the power of reading through his own program that brings books to prisons. I'm going to note, and you see this further down in the, uh, in the story. It's a very long read. You should check it out. But this guy was framed by Louis Scarsella, who was one of the dirty cops in the NYPD, who skated through his entire career framing people, was allowed to retire and keep his pension, and has never once been prosecuted to this day. Also, out of New York City, we have the first rule of Fisk police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. And for this one, we actually have a clip. So let me play it for you and let you uh, have a listen. Now, that particular clip was uploaded to twitter if you couldn't quite make out what he said uh there's a handy transcript where he says take a fucking walk drops an n-bomb and says go shoot your fucking heroin and die go shoot your heroin he was responding to a methadone clinic where apparently someone had claimed that some guys were arguing so this guy responds with his gun out and just utterly spazzes on everybody as the guys are trying to explain to him that there's no reason to have his gun pulled out and the interesting part about the press is that as they report what he said, they had conveniently left out the N-word in the middle there, all they say is, subquote, shoot your fucking heroin and die, when there's actually a lot more to the video than that. So we'll give you a link to it. Uh, Also, out of NYPD, uh, a bunch of people have been arrested for running a prostitution ring. From that story, it says, quote, a retired NYPD vice detective put his know-how to bad use, allegedly masterminding a prostitution and gambling ring that got him and seven active cops arrested. Three sergeants, two detectives, and two police officers spent wind Wednesday night in custody ahead of arraignments on charges including enterprise corruption, promoting prostitution, and official misconduct. The retired vice detective, whose name was not immediately released, was arrested Tuesday night. The buses are part of a three year internal affairs probe into cop protected brothels run on Roosevelt Avenue in Queens and in Sunset Park, Brooklyn but they were just the beginning. Investigators are targeting an additional 30 cops for questioning and possible arrest, and more than 40 civilians have also been arrested. So we give you a link to that story uh, out of Rochester, New York. Now this is just this is surreal to me because a local news station, uh, News 10, the NBC affiliate, is trying to get information on a police brutality settlement. And it's not going well. And I want you to wait until the end for why the city is refusing to give them this information because it just makes no sense at all. From the story, it says, quote, The city of Rochester has yet to show News 10 NBC the video of alleged police brutality involving two police officers. And now it refuses to tell us how much it paid to settle another brutality case. Experts from the New York State Committee on Open Governments told News 10 NBC the public should know how much the city is paying out. But when News 10 NBC told them what the city told us, they didn't get it. In July of 2016, Ricky Bryant was riding his bike at night. As security video shows, a handful of Rochester police officers swarmed Bryant and took him to the ground. Bryant was wrongfully arrested and injured. In January, without public notice, the city paid Bryant a settlement, and he dropped his lawsuit. We asked the city's lawyer, how much did the city pay Bryant? The city's council Tim Curtin replied in an email, subquote, In order to protect the interests of our taxpayers, we do not disclose the terms of our settlements. That is astonishing to me. To protect taxpayers, we're not gonna tell them how much we pay to make lawsuits go away when our taxpayer-funded personnel violate other people's constitutional rights. You know how fucking ridiculous that is? I would say that's only a New York thing, but I wouldn't be surprised if that happens somewhere else, too. But that is utterly fucking astonishing. Uh, at Oklahoma, in Cleveland, which I didn't know was a city in Oklahoma, uh, a police officer has been arrested for being a drug dealer. From that story, it says, quote, a now-former officer was arrested following a traffic stop in Oklahoma City. According to an affidavit obtained by the Cleveland American, 33-year-old Terry Brown was arrested after a traffic stop for reported possession of nearly 160 pounds of marijuana. It's a fuckload of weed. If you go to the uh, Cleveland American link, which was a story posted to Facebook, there was 150 pounds of weed and then 9.6 pounds of edible gummies. And the story closes quote, Brown was booked into the Oklahoma County Jail for drug trafficking. So I'll we'll give you a link to that one out of Pennsylvania. In Pittsburgh, you might recall the story of Kalen O'Connor. He was the police officer we talked about way back in episode 59, who responded to a story about, uh, responded to a call, rather, about road rage discovered that the person engaging in the road rage incident was also a police officer, and then fabricated his police reports to avoid any reference to that particular officer so that the officer would not get in trouble. He was charged with falsifying reports, obstruction of justice, and some other stuff. Uh, Well, the judge has decided that he's going to give him the benefit of the doubt. He doesn't think that it was necessarily criminal, quote-unquote, from that story, it says, quote, a district judge on Tuesday dismissed two of four charges against a Pittsburgh police officer accused of hindering an investigation to try to protect another officer who was allegedly involved in a road rage incident in 2017. District Judge Eugene Ricciardi dismissed charges of unsworn falsification to authorities and official oppression against Officer Kalen T. O'Connor of Banksville and held charges of hindering apprehension or prosecution and obstructing the administration of law. Subquote, I believe there was some carelessness, and it could have been more carelessness than criminality, Judge Ricciardi said as he made the decision during a preliminary hearing downtown. Officer O'Connor responded to a reported road rage incident at the intersection of Chartiers Avenue and Straka Street in Sheridan. A driver, Jesse Smith, said that a man driving a black Mercedes had pulled alongside his SUV and pointed a gun at him. Mr. Smith drove away and called 911, giving dispatchers a partial license plate for the Mercedes. Officer O'Connor was one of two officers to respond to the scene. He took the partial license plate number and found a potential match. A black Mercedes registered to Officer Robert Kramer. The officers at the scene then asked the officers to respond to Officer Kramer's address. But after a flurry of phone calls between several officers over several hours, including calls to Officer Kramer, they canceled the 911 call, court records show. The officers who arrived at Officer Kramer's home were told by Officer Raymond Toomey that an officer lived at that house and they could all leave, according to a criminal complaint. Officer Toomey has since resigned. In Officer O'Connor's subsequent report about the road rage incident, he excluded all information about Officer Kramer and listed the suspect in the case as unknown. So just know that if you're a dirty cop in Pittsburgh, you can get a district judge to say, oh, it was just laziness or a mistake. It is not, in fact, criminal. Uh, Out of Texas. So in Dallas, we really had the story of the week, which is still evolving because the story is total bullshit. Uh, But essentially... A police officer named Amber Geiger with the Dallas PD broke into the home of an unarmed black man, Botham Jean, and shot him dead in his own apartment for sport. And when this all happened, we got to see the stories change in real time as police uh, leaked things to the press and to Twitter and it's, it's fascinating because essentially the woman initially said that she thought she was in her own apartment. So she lives in the floor below this particular guy, thought she went to her own apartment, saw him there, claimed she was being burglarized and shot him near the door. Then after she was, instead of being arrested, she was let go. And the Dallas PD called in the Texas Rangers. Someone with the Texas Rangers wrote up her story And it's totally different. It actually looks like it was written by a defense attorney, frankly, where she claimed that she parked on the wrong level of the garage, went to the home, opened the door because she tried to put her key in, but the door was already ajar. So she just managed to push it open deep in the apartment. She saw a silhouette that she gave commands to the commands ignored her or the person ignored her commands rather. And then she shot him dead. Uh, And then there's been subsequent stuff where people who actually live in that apartment complex show that the door doesn't actually stay open. So the idea that it was ajar doesn't make sense. The police did a search of the dead guy's apartment and found marijuana there that they conveniently leaked to the media. Uh, The woman has since moved out. There's no indication whether or not the police ever searched her apartment after she killed the guy. Uh, So it's all a mess. It is all a complete and total mess. And this particular guy, Botham Jean, did everything that you hear white Republican All Lives Matter people say black folks have to do to avoid being shot by the police. He had a decent education, got a college degree. He lived in a nice neighborhood, a neighborhood with a police uh, officer as a neighbor, had a good job with PricewaterhouseCoopers, dressed well, minded his own business, was in his particular apartment and was still summarily executed without due process for sport anyway. And the responses on social media have just been grotesque. So you have Dana Lash, the NRA spokesperson, who's now no longer an NRA spokesperson because the NRA is tied up with the Russian mess, uh, basically said that he would still be alive if he was a gun owner because she would have defended herself. And it's his fault that he didn't do that. Uh, You had a bunch of people, Jacob Wall and a few others, that when the uh, marijuana came out, they're like, well, you know, obviously he, he fucking deserved it then. If he had just complied with the commands then everything would be fine. Uh, it's all it's all stunningly crazy to me that a government agent breaks into an innocent taxpayer's home and there are people actually willing to defend that person summarily executing the occupant of the apartment. I mean, if someone broke into my home, I don't give a fuck if you're a police officer or not. If I'm doing nothing wrong and you break in, uh, something is awry. I'm not going to abide by your fucking commands. You know what I mean? Now, in my case, I actually happened to be a gun owner. Don't know if I'd have time to get to the gun. uh, But if I did, one of us ain't leaving vertical. I'll put it that way. But the whole story is fucked up. I'm going to give you a link to the initial charge. Because in addition, as part of the whole fuckery, she's only being charged with manslaughter. She's not being charged with murder at all. Apparently in Texas, uh, it should be murder because she intended to kill the person she shot at. But going back to this whole Texas Rangers thing where the affidavit of her story reads like it was written by a defense attorney, they're only charging her with manslaughter. It's utterly fucking nuts. But I'm going to give you a link to that story where she's charged with manslaughter. I'm also going to give you a link to Vox. Now, I don't share Vox links much because they annoy the fuck out of me. But they have compiled one of their explainers that has links to a bunch of different media stories of these subsequent developments. And it was the most efficient compilation I could find for you, so you can see all the stuff that has happened since then. So check out those links in the show notes for the full story. Let's watch it as it develops. We'll see what happens. But this is a damn tragedy, and my heart goes out to the Botham Jean family that this guy's life was snatched uh, from the rest of them. Uh, by an armed, taxpayer-funded agent of the state. at of Laredo, Texas, we have another incident of the third rule of Fisk. There are no new stories, just new names and jurisdictions. Uh, A Border Patrol agent in Webb County has been arrested for murdering people. From that story, it says, quote, A U.S. Border Patrol agent suspected of killing four women was arrested early Saturday after a fifth woman, who had been abducted, managed to escape from him and notify authorities. Law enforcement officials are describing the agent as, subquote, a serial killer. Juan David Ortiz, 35, an intel supervisor for the Border Patrol, this guy is part of the leadership, Uh, fled from state troopers and was found hiding in a truck in a hotel parking lot in Laredo around 2 a.m. Saturday, Webb County Sheriff Martin Quellar said at a news conference. Quellar said investigators have, subquote, very strong evidence that he is responsible for the deaths of the four women who are believed to have worked as prostitutes. Subquote, we do consider this to be a serial killer, said Webb County District Attorney Isidro Alanis. Now, you might be wondering, where is the third rule angle to that? Well, you might remember back in episode 59 that this is the exact same unit of the Border Patrol as Ronald Burgos Aviles, who killed a 27-year-old woman that he was sleeping with and killed her one-year-old child. So there seems to be a bunch of killers on this particular unit of the United States Border Patrol. So those are the stories out of Texas. Lastly, in Wisconsin, out of Madison, there's an expose on the costs of the state's teen prison complex because it costs a fuckload of money. Like, I'm reading the numbers. This is a long read, so I'm going to give you the link so you can go through it, but I'm just reading some of the intro stuff, and I'm like, fuck's sake, they spend so much money Uh, from the story. It says, quote, lawsuits over the problems at Wisconsin's Juvenile Prison Complex have cost the state $20.6 million so far, and those costs will continue to rise, possibly by large sums if some cases aren't resolved in the state's favor. The facility for more than three years has been under criminal investigation for prisoner abuse and child neglect. If charges are issued, that could open the state to more legal exposure from lawsuits. Subquote, it's the cost of getting it wrong, State Representative Evan Goyke of Milwaukee said of the state's legal tab. The legal fees and settlements come on top of an $80 million plan by Governor Scott Walker and lawmakers to close Lincoln Hill School for Boys and Copperlick School for Girls by 2021 and replace them with regional facilities for teen inmates. In all, the problems at the complex north of Wassall and the decision to close it have cost the state more than $100 million. At least five cases over conditions at Lincoln Hills are still pending, and more could be filed. They're spending over $100 million. between a fifth of that settling brutality cases and the rest trying to tear down the facility and build these regional facilities that hopefully will be cheaper. But, like, the, the sums of money that gets spent for stuff like this that could have been done more cheaply had they done it right in the first place. It's crazy to me. It, it's absolutely crazy to me. And it bugs me, not just because of the, the philosophical issues I have with juvenile offenders being abused and that sort of thing, but it bugs me because every three months I've got fucking paperwork. I got to fill out for somebody. I'm either filling out a quarterly return for the IRS, filling out a quarterly return for the state department of revenue or filling out my quarterly unemployment insurance uh, forms for the state. And I'm just like, y'all take my money. Granted, this is not Wisconsin, but we still have ways to blow money. But I'm just like, I work my ass off to pay my bills and feed my dog and fund the government, and they blow it on frivolous shit like this. It just completely boggles my mind. I don't get it. Anyhow, so that is it for the state-by-state criminal justice fuckery in this particular episode. I realized that we're only at an hour. I don't know why it's so short because I had roughly 20 pages and that usually takes an hour and a half. Uh, So I guess enjoy this 30 minutes of your life that you're not going to have to spend listening to my mellifluous voice. Uh, But on behalf of myself and Mike, the sound guy, who's going to edit this remotely, thank all of you for listening. We're officially back. I appreciate you all sticking with us. I hope you have a blessed week ahead and I will talk to you next Monday. Take care. Yeah.